Amen. You can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, or we'll be on the screen. And I'm um, excited to be back into the Scriptures, uh, going through this Genesis series, Genesis 1 through 3. We started at the beginning of this year um, and covered Genesis 1, and then some already. And here we are now into February, and we are on part 2 of creation. I don't know if you even knew that there's sort of part 1 and part 2. Uh, but that's kind of what we have in creation. Uh, the big picture was chapter 1. That's the macro vision of all that God has made. Six days, it's presented to us as a sweeping picture of the mighty power of God as creator. And then in chapter 2, what we do after a day of rest is zero in on human beings. <laughs> We're looking at a close-up now on God and his weirdest creature, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, human beings are probably the strangest thing that he's made um, in all of this creation. Uh, they are unpredictable. Um, I have a dog. I love my dog. I know we have dog people, cat people here. And, um, my dog is, is pretty predictable. Um, he's pretty easy to understand, right? Uh, you know, people say, I wish my dog could speak. If he could speak, it, it wouldn't, he wouldn't say much. This is what he would say. He would say four words. He would say food, pet, or pet me. That's two words, I guess. Walk. Or let's play catch. Catch. Those are the only words they would actually say. I mean, you can pretty much figure out what he wants to do at any point in time. Um, human beings, on the other hand, are totally different. Uh, they're, they're unpredictable. Um, they're, they're not easy. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a human being, so I know this. One day, I'm feeling down. I, I, I don't know why. Just not happy. The next day, I'm excited and ready to attack life. I'm inspired. I, I, I don't even know what changed. Um, you watch a a video or a sports game or hear a song and you feel inspired and excited about life. And then somebody says something to you and you feel angry and upset. And I mean, human beings are, are difficult. Uh, we're an enigma. We're, we're complicated. <laughs> we're wild, actually. Uh, we like to think animals are wild. You know, when a lion tackles a, a gazelle or a zebra and it suffocates it and eats it and say, well, look how wild it is. No, lions have been doing that for centuries. It's nothing surprising they do it every single day. There's nothing wild about that. Human beings are the ones that are unpredictable. They're, they're a unique part of God's creation. What's the deal with us? <laughs> well, we'll see here, chapter 2, verses 5 to 17, that God made us unique. God made us a spiritual, responsible, and accountable creature. Now, open your Bible or, or look with me. Uh, there's an outline in your bulletin, as always, as well. But we're going to be in Genesis 2, 5 to 17. As God sort of zeroes in, or the picture in the Bible zeroes in on human beings and the relationship that God has with us as spiritual, responsible, and accountable creatures. 2 5, we read this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. In a mist, was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We'll stop there. There's a lot more in the story. Lord willing, we'll get there next week. But as I said, there's an outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at those three things. Spiritual, responsible, and accountable. That's what makes us weird. That's what makes us, in some ways, unique among all of God's creation. First, the Lord made us spiritual. Look at verses 5 through 9. God made man a spiritual creature. Uh, as I said, this fits with Genesis 1. Uh, the author of Genesis, most likely Moses, puts these two stories of creation back to back. He knows they don't contradict, but one is sort of zeroed in on the other. And we see that even by the way God is referred. So in chapter 1, God is called Elohim, which we translate God, rightly. And it's the common name for God. In fact, even the non-Christian or the non-Jewish nations, the pagan nations, would refer to their God as El which is short for Elohim, the single for Elohim. Uh, so they referred to God as God. So when we think of chapter 1, God is God over everything, capital G, uh, the one true supreme being over everything. But here in chapter 2, the name is a little different. You don't see it as clearly maybe in the English, but it's the Lord God. And what the Lord God is is two words, Yahweh, Elohim. And Yahweh is the intimate relational name of God. Um, it's where God tells his people, specifically his covenant with Israel in the Old Testament, my name shall be Yahweh. I am the one who is. It's a covenant. It's a relational term that God has for his people. And so as we look more closely at human beings, he's not just God over human beings. He's the Lord God. He is Yahweh over them, the intimate covenant name of God. We see that God makes him from the dust, makes man from the dust, which is true, isn't it? We are made up of organic, physical material. Uh, it's even still today. What happens to your body after you're done with it? It goes to the ground and turns right back into dust because that's what it's made out of. It's made out of everything else. Same thing that everything else is made out of in this universe. Atoms and molecules and stuff that eventually deteriorates back into dust. But God takes the dust from the ground and what does he do? He breathes life into it. This isn't just sort of wind. This is, this is the breath of God. This is the spirit of God. In fact, that is a connection we don't see again. It's clearly maybe in the English between breath and wind and spirit. God breathes life into him, into his nostrils like a kiss. Um, Derek Kidner, he's a, a late uh, theologian, said this, Breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. God makes man by blowing his own breath into him. He makes him more than physical. He makes him spiritual. 
Just as a side note, you know, in the New Testament, when Jesus, after the resurrection, before he leaves his disciples, what does he do to them? He breathes on them. Just may seem kind of strange, right? <laughs> Why did Jesus breathe on his disciples? And hopefully back then they had pretty good hygiene. Uh, he breathes on his disciples, but it's a symbol that he is giving them of himself. He's giving them his own spirit to be with them. Then God plants a garden. Uh, he puts the man in it, fills it with food all around him, um, and puts two important trees in there, which we're going to look at later, particularly that second tree. The tree of life appears here. Uh, the assumption behind it is you eat from the tree of life and you continue on living. Um, so we're not necessarily naturally immortal creatures. Uh, that doesn't happen naturally. We're, we, we sort of die just like everything. You know, we, but here, the tree of life sustains human beings eternally. And as long as we have access to the tree of life, we live forever. And we see, of course, in the book of Revelation, access to this tree of life is given to his people once again. But notice here, friends, that man is made into a spiritual being. A spiritual being. Uh, we're made out of two materials, if you would. Uh, we're made from the dust of the ground. Again, that's completely true. Just like the animals, just like the trees, just like the rocks and the dirt on the ground, we are made from carbon. We're made from molecules, just like everything else. And later on, as we see, we return to that same thing. Uh, coming up in March is uh, Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is one of those holidays, or those high sort of Christian days that most Protestants and most Baptists in particular don't actually celebrate. We don't do a, a service. Um, it's usually Roman Catholic or other high church traditions that do uh, an Ash Wednesday service. But Ash Wednesday is just the beginning, the, the first day of Lent, which prepares us for Easter. That's what it is. And I remember I went to an Ash Wednesday service before. Um, it was, it was uh, some type of Protestant service. And the pastor would take the ashes, of course, he puts it on your forehead. And as he put it on, he says this, For dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. For dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. For dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. And I think what a powerful reminder as we think about the passion, the death, and resurrection of Christ, that we are dust and we are mortal. And without God's grace, it's to the dust that we return. We are made from the dust. We share that with all else in creation. But we're more than that. We're more than that. We're more than merely natural. We have the breath of God in us. We saw this in chapter 1, that there's something unique about human beings. We're made in the image of God. <laughs> We're, we're, not, we're not like any, any other animal in the sense that we bear God's image back to him. That we're called to be stewards over all else that God has made. Over the earth, subdue it. Uh, over all the animals, to rule over them. That we're made very good in the beginning. We've fallen into sin and we'll get to talk a lot more about that. Uh, but we're more than merely natural here, we see. We are spiritual. We bear not just the dust of the ground, but the breath of God. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, most people want to say uh, today, a lot of people want to say today, we're, we're not believers. Uh, we're nothing more than what you can see. Uh, we're nothing more than our bodies, uh, our brains, our hearts, our physical being. That's all we are. Which really means, you know what we are? We're stardust. <laughs> That's all we are. Billions of years ago, some explosion happened and... Uh, Stuff flow, flew everywhere, and eventually some stardust uh, evolved over time and became 
us some strange way. Uh, we're chemicals and atoms and molecules uh, acting in a certain way at a certain temperature. And we're nothing more than that. <laughs> well, in one sense, that's partially true. We are physical. But I think we all know we're, we're more than that. You know, as I mentioned in the news lately, has been a lot about um, a fetus and what a fetus is and so forth. And uh, people say, well, it's just, a, it's just a lump of cells. That is, that's all it is. It's a lump of cells. What's the big deal? Well, if, if this is what you believe, there's no God and we're not spiritual, then we're all a lump of cells. I mean, why are you singling them out? That's what I am. That's what you are. I mean, that's what we are in one sense. We're just nothing more than a lump of cells unless we are truly spiritual and made in the image of God. And if we are, then to take the life of someone or something made in the image of God is a great evil. Friends, we're more than just physical. I think we know this. We know this for a lot of different ways. We know this by music. I think this is a great example. Um, if you take this particular pitch sound and another particular pitch sound, and a few more of them, and you put them in a specific order, it will create such a beauty that it will make your heart rejoice and sing. Why is that? There's no natural explanation for that. That doesn't even make any sense. Why is it these sounds put together in this specific way create Beethoven's fifth? I, I, I don't know. It's a spiritual thing. We know there's something beyond merely atoms and chemicals acting at a certain time and temperature. Something goes beyond that. Beauty. What is beauty? And I don't just mean physical attractiveness. I mean, when you look at a, a, a river flowing through this beautiful, the stream flowing through this beautiful landscape, there's something beautiful, and you know, something beyond merely physical. This isn't just what my eyes are refracting in relation to the light. There's something happening here. A creator is speaking to me and saying and showing himself to me. And I think maybe the most obvious one, there's plenty of other ones we could talk about, but love. What is love? Love is clearly something beyond merely physical. And this is the good thing about love is even, even those who don't know the Lord Jesus would recognize this. I remember watching the movie Interstellar, uh, which is uh, got Matthew McConaughey. It's a pretty decent movie. They used a lot of uh, science fiction, but they used actual scientists to try to make what it would be like to be able to travel through space. And, and it's interesting, at the end of the movie, what is the conclusion? That love is the purpose to the universe. There's no science, there's no physical reason to come to that conclusion, isn't it? I thought it was interesting that even the world comes to the conclusion that there is something that rises above merely physical. Love is somehow tied to the very answer of why we exist, which is close to the truth, because God is love, and it's the summation of all of that is good in this universe. Just a little side note, I, uh, I don't know if you guys, anyone like science fiction? Otherwise, this is going to, okay, good, otherwise this is going to fall short as an illustration. So, a, a big thing nowadays is artificial intelligence. Uh, can we recreate a human being? Uh, recreate a human mind and, and make a human being uh, from a machine. And, uh, and actually, this is a big deal nowadays because we're, technology is getting pretty advanced and we're able to create some pretty amazing things. So the most advanced robot right now, if you want a, a humanoid sort of looking thing, is Sophia. We got a picture of Sophia. I, I gave you the back of her head because you can see all the wires and stuff. But her face looks kind of like a normal human being. And she's supposed to be able to interact with people actually take thoughts that you tell her and, and, and come up with new answers that aren't programmed in or so forth or whatever. But AI is bigger than that. Um, AI is saying, can we create an intelligence in this, in this world? And actually, there's a lot of people that are afraid of, of AI. They say, 
we're going to create something so smart that it's going to outdo humans. Right? This is just a fun, okay? Uh, and actually, you think, well, that's only sort of radical, you know. No, this is actually pretty common. Uh, this is what uh, Stephen Hawking, the famous uh, physicist, some people say the greatest scientific mind in our day, the late Stephen Hawking, he said, the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. It could take, us, take off on its own and redesign itself at an ever-increasing rate. Humans, who are limited by slow biological evolution, couldn't compete and would be superseded. Say, we're going to create something better than humans and humans are going to be just left in the past. Or Elon Musk, you know, Tesla, and SpaceX and all that, he said, I'm increasingly inclined to think that there should be some regulatory oversight, maybe at the national or international level, just to make sure that we don't do something very foolish. I mean, with artificial intelligence, we're summoning the demon. That was his own view. Uh, and then you think, okay, well, those guys are, how about Bill Gates? Bill Gates, you know, Microsoft. This is what Bill Gates said. I'm in the camp that is concerned about superintelligence. First, the machines will do lots of jobs that are not superintelligent. That should be positive if we manage it well. A few decades after that, though, the intelligence is strong enough to be a concern. I agree with Elon Musk and some others on this and don't understand why some people are not concerned. So the fear is we're going to actually replace humans with a superintelligence. I don't think it'll ever happen. <laughs> you know why? Because we're more than machines. We're more than a computer. There's something spiritual about us. And I think we know that. I mean, if I asked you, who are you? You'd say, well, I'm, I'm just define you. Well, I'm, I'm this, this person with these arms and legs. Well, if you, if you didn't have your arms and legs, you'd still be you, yeah? Well, I'm this person that looks a certain way. Well, you know, if you got into this tragic car accident and changed the weight, you'd still be you. Well, I'm this mind. Well, what if you did have some disorder? Or what if you did have some brain damage or mental illness and you'd still be you? Who are you? You're beyond merely your physical body. Yes, you're the dust of the earth, but you're also the breath of God. You're your personality. It's who you are. And that personality exists even outside of your body when you die and go to be with the Lord. And that's why I think evangelism, when it comes to outreach too, this is important. Uh, we're not trying to just convince people intellectually. <laughs> that's not the goal. We're not trying to get people to join a religion. We're trying to point people to the one who gives spiritual life. The one who makes a new man, a new woman out of us. It's not just obey these, this list of commands. It's need, what's needed is a true transformation. God makes us a new creature. God is the one who gives us true spiritual life. What does this mean for us, friends? Well, a couple of things. I would say, when it comes to being healthy, uh, understand that this is who we are. We're, we're spiritual creatures. It's more than just the physical. Uh, we want to be physically healthy. That's important. Um, I, I, I try to get to the gym, trying to eat healthy. I'm, by the way, I, I preached last week and I was sick. I went to the doctor right afterwards and found out I had bronchitis. So I got diagnosed with bronchitis. They gave me some medicine. I'm starting to feel better. And I want to make sure I'm, I'm, you know, I had a shake this morning. So I want to make sure I'm staying physically healthy. Actually, Jeannie gave me a, I have some mushroom here. And this is supposed to be like really, really good for your health. So I want to try some of this. I know that Rachel's not here, but she always recommends it as well. Uh, so yes, take good care of yourself. You want to be physically healthy. You want to be mentally healthy, as we just said. 
Too much stress in your life is not good for you. It's not good for you physically. It's not good for you as a person. Uh, you want to make sure you're mentally sharp and learning and growing. And you want to be emotionally healthy. You know, you don't want to be a, a basket case who can't, who's all over the map. Someone who, can, who, who can't control their emotions. And, or you don't want to be someone who's stoic all the time either. It doesn't feel life. You want to be relationally healthy. You know, you don't want to make sure you're, you're not with people who are constantly tearing you down, uh, pointing you away from Christ rather than to Christ. You want to focus on, you want to be, have a good, healthy relationships, not based on intimidation or fear. You want to be financially healthy. Uh, that's why we're offering Financial Peace University and Legacy Journey. We think these are important things. You want to make sure you're honoring God with what you have and using it well. But it's more than that, friends. You want to make sure you are spiritually healthy. You're not just the dust of the earth. You're the breath of God. That's why prayer is so powerful. A prayer is not just asking God for things. <laughs> prayer is primarily a spiritual work. It, it reorients ourselves in relationship to God. It recognizes that we are spiritual and we, rec- and we look to the God who made us. Worship is so important. Worship understands our place before an all-holy and good God and seeks to enjoy His grace, recognizing that it's His Holy Spirit who dwells in us who believe in Him. That's why the church is so important. Uh, the church is not just a social club. Uh, you can get social relationships somewhere else, uh, maybe even better than a church at times. Uh, it's not just a classroom. You can learn everything you learn here on a Sunday morning online. Just take a Bible class at Gordon-Conwell or Liberty University or wherever it is. You'll get great Bible teaching. It's not just social justice and outreach to the poor, although we do that as well, of course, but you can do that with other ministries as well. What are we? Ultimately, friends, the church is a spiritual entity seeing to your spiritual health and growth and seeing people transformed by the grace of God. The Lord made us spiritual creatures. 10 to 15, He made us responsible creatures. Responsible creatures. He describes the land that the garden is in. Um, he describes here, uh, this is where it gets kind of detailed. Maybe this is the part you were least familiar with if you heard the story of creation before. Uh, that the river flows out of Eden and it splits into four different rivers. Um, we know the Tigris and the Euphrates are common rivers. Uh, they're rivers that we know from history and even to, to today. Uh, we know where they are. Um, they're, they're, they're not a big surprise to us. The Pishon and the Gihon... We have no idea. We don't know anything about these rivers. Uh, They don't exist today as far as we know. We don't know which rivers they are at least. Uh, There is a river, I think, that's called the Gihon today. But there's no necessary historical connection to the river that he's talking about here. So we don't know anything about that. Uh, uh, All we know is, you know, this was a physical, actual place. Where is it? Seems like, from the Tigris Euphrates, in the Middle East, in northern Africa, somewhere around that is this place called Eden. We know it's not accessible to us today, um, but uh, we learned that there's gold there. Bedellium. Uh, anyone know what Bedellium is? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, honestly. Is the bee silent? I don't know. Bedellium is a fragrant raisin um, produced by a number of trees related to myrrh, and it's used in perfumes. That's what it is. And onyx, I had an idea what onyx is, but it's a variety of chalcedony having straight parallel bands of alternating colors. It's a sort of dark gemstone is what onyx is. So it's a place that's great. I got a great deal of beauty to it as well. But it's, it's, not, it's not a tale. It's not a fiction. Uh, he's describing a place that actually existed on this earth. 
in history at some point in time. And God puts the man into the garden to do what? To work it and to keep it. To be a steward over it. Adam was a farmer. You talk about the oldest profession, right? We use that to refer to a different profession. Actually, the oldest profession was farming. (laughs) That was the oldest profession. To care for the land. That's what Adam was called to do. And is it no surprise that farming is almost like the iconic occupation or vocation of what it means to, to work hard, right? Anyone know the, the uh, uh, it's not really a poem, but whatever it is that by Paul Harvey, the statement, the rhetoric, uh, God made a farmer? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Oh, you guys got to listen. If you get a chance, that's what? Make sure you listen to God made a farmer by Paul Harvey. Um, talking about the, the land. I want to read you a part of it, but it's not the same. You've got to listen to it in his raspy voice and listen to the whole thing. But it, here it is, the, the work of a farmer. This is a classic of American rhetoric. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to tame lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets, who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadow lark. It had to be somebody who would plow deep and straight and not cut corners. Somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake and disc and plow and plant and tie the fleece and strain the milk and replenish the self-feeder and finish a hard week's work with a five-mile drive to church. Somebody who would bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says he wants to spend his life doing what his dad does. So God made a farmer. <laughs> All right, Frank, you know it. I saw your hand go up. Uh, what a picture here of Adam working the ground. God put him in the garden for a reason. Uh, you might ask, I mean, what, you know, could God have created a world that just sprouts up on its own and doesn't need anyone to farm it and to care for it? Of course he could have. Why didn't he? Because he wants to entrust human beings with responsibility. Genuine, real, actual responsibility with work to be done that is good. We saw this in the last chapter. God worked for six days, takes a day of rest, does that as an example to us. And understand, this is before there's any sin in the world. This is before there's death in the world. And yet there is work to be done. Work is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's not a result of the fall. It's what we're called to do. And I just encourage you, friends, those here who are working, what you're doing with your life, the other six days of the week is good. And it's exactly what God's calling you to do. To, to our, those who are working in a trade or a profession or stay-at-home moms, what you're doing is both spiritual and good. Exactly what God would have you do. Keep working. And I just encourage all of us to keep working. Uh, keep working, keep learning, keep accomplishing, keep producing something, keep doing. I, I hope this is how I, my retirement, I hope to retire someday. Uh, here's how I want to spend my retirement. Joining some church... I'll probably have to leave First Baptist, which will be heartbreaking for me. But uh, I think it's wise for a retired pastor not to stay at the church that he served at. But find some young pastor and just be a support to him. And I'd find him say, hey, anytime you need me to preach for you, I'll preach for you. Do a funeral, a wedding. You need somebody to lead a Bible study or whatever you want. I'm here to help and support you. I'm a retired pastor. Use me in any way you want or don't use me, whatever you want. That, that's how I love to spend my retirement. Still serving the Lord. And maybe doing mission work as well. Part of the year. Um, Friends, we're called to work, called to serve Him. God made us responsible. Uh, You know, it's interesting. When we lose this, uh, when we lose a sense of of work, um, 
You know, if you retire too early and you don't use your retirement to do anything productive, our, our lives go haywire. <laughs> I got nothing to do, nothing to take care of, nothing to oversee, and, and things start getting really messy in our lives. Why? Because God didn't make us that way. <laughs> he made us to work. It's part of how we are created, even without sin in the world. He called us to take responsibility uh, for this world. You know, it's so easy to play the blame game for everything that goes wrong. Right? I blame the politicians. That's the real problem with our country. I blame the rich. They're just stealing from the poor. It's all the crooks out there. And No, we're called to take responsibility to step up, to work, to care for people, to care for this world, to care for one another. Responsible. We're supposed to be responsible for our families, for, as a husband, as a father, or as a wife and a mother. Responsible for our church. If things aren't going the way you like it here, if you think you could do something different, better, step up. Join in. Jump in and serve. Responsible for our community and our country and our world. That's why I love some of the things we're doing lately. Uh, this ESL class. Uh, that's not about benefiting our church. Because, I mean, I think everyone here speaks English. It's their first language. Most, it may be a second language for some of you. Um, ASL class as well. We want to take responsibility to help. That's why we're hosting AA. How can we take the responsibility to serve and to help? You know, they say that churches in a previous generation um, could just wait for people to show up on a Sunday morning, and they would in time. That is no longer the case. And the, the saying now is churches need to quadruple their outreach. People just don't show up on Sunday. Whatever you're doing for outreach, it's probably too little. It's time to Multiply it by four. Really make an intention to get out there in the community and take a responsibility to reach people and to serve people. Do we fail at this? Yes. And we're going to talk a lot about sin in an upcoming sermon, I'm sure. But we fail, we sin. And what do we do when we fail? We turn to Jesus, look to him for repentance and grace, and then keep going. Step back up and keep going and going. The Lord made us responsible creatures and the Lord made us Thirdly, accountable, accountable creatures. Look at 16 and 17. Back to these two trees, uh, which are so unique in the garden. Uh, God gives his first command, his first Torah, his first law. Uh, yes, there's other responsibilities. Subdue the earth, be fruitful and multiply, work the land. Those are all responsibilities that we have. But this is really the first law from God, the first commandment. And what is the commandment? The commandment is starts this way. You may eat from any tree. It doesn't start, you may not. The commandment actually starts with a very generous command. Go ahead and eat. Eat up. You're surrounded by beautiful trees filled with fruit and filled with different nuts, almonds, and so forth. And eat up and enjoy it all. <laughs> this is not a restrictive commandment. This is a generous commandment. Eat up. But he does say, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which again, it's not the tree of life. Eat up from the tree of life. That's a better tree anyway. But there's one tree I put in the garden. Just one. And I tell you, don't eat from it. Because if you do, you will surely die. Now you might ask the question. This long, lots of debate have happened. This is a common sort of uh, dorm room debate at a Christian school. Why is the tree in the garden? Did God, you know, what's the purpose of it? And, um, first of all, again, I just want to be clear. This is not a harsh commandment. It's a big garden. It's huge, and it's full of food, and it's all very good. Later on, we see he creates all the animals for Adam as well. 
for companionship, and of course, Eve, his wife, and he's surrounded by goodness. It's like a kid in a candy shop, right? You're surrounded by blessing. You're surrounded by delicious and amazing things. Just don't eat the black licorice, right? Which you don't want to eat anyway. There's just one thing in the garden I want you to stay away from. Everything else is truly good. Yeah, I love trees. Anyone love trees? Yeah, everyone loves trees. Good. Uh, you know, the most common trees in New England, white pine, red maple, northern red oak, and hemlock. That's what we have here. In Israel, these are the ones that appear in the Bible. And notice how many of these are fruit trees. The Aleppo pine, the terebinth, the Mount Tabor oak, the cedar of Lebanon, the tamarisk, the cypress, the grapevine, the European olive, the sycamore tree, fig tree, the pomegranate tree, the acacia wood tree, the almond tree, the date palm, and the apple tree. That doesn't make you even make you hungry even just hearing about all of those wonderful, wonderful foods that God has given us. So why then still, you might ask? Okay, it's not a restrictive commandment, it's not a harsh commandment, but still, why did he put it in there? And people have used the illustration, it's like putting a loaded gun in a room with a kid. What's the purpose of the loaded gun? And actually, if I could just take that illustration and push it one step further, don't you want your kids to eventually grow responsible enough that if there's a loaded gun in the room, they won't use it. Isn't that part of what you would hope for? God is calling Adam to be accountable. He's trying to give him the ability here to choose good or evil. And to choose good. To be morally accountable. To hear the word of God spoken, the law of God commanded, and to obey it. As we said, we're not robots, we're not machines, <laughs> we're not just computers. We have this freedom to choose in the garden. Adam had a freedom to choose good or evil. And God did it so that he would choose good. Now understand, as Luther said, and I agree with him, and Calvin, when sin enters the world, our will is in bondage to sin, and we cannot choose good on our own. We will continue to choose evil because sin has become our nature. But why did it even begin with? It began here as an opportunity for Adam to love. In order to love, there needs to be some choice. If I said to my kids, uh, I want you to demonstrate your love for me by making sure you make your beds every morning. Do we have a choice? No. <laughs> well, they're going to do it. If you don't, I'm going to punish you. Well, no, that's not really necessarily love. Uh, I want you to choose Adam to do what is good. He makes us accountable. We really exist, friends. And what we do really actually matters. Our choices matter. Uh, we're not God. Uh, in a world in which everything is God, anything that happens is just part of God. That's not the world God made. He made actual human beings who exist in this world. And your sin, when you choose to rebel against God, it affects not just you, although it certainly affects you. It affects those closest to you and around you and creates a greater net evil in the world. We sin. Adam and Eve sinned. And when we do, God holds us to his word. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There's a spiritual death, and we'll talk more about that coming up, that comes as a result, as a consequence of being accountable before God. That's why, <laughs> we'll end on a good note here, grace is everything. <laughs> 
Grace is everything for us as Christians. Our message is not, as Christians, do this and don't do that. God said do this and God said don't do that. Our message is we need grace and we need forgiveness and mercy. That's the heart of the Christian faith. God made man a spiritual, responsible, and accountable creature. Only God could do something as amazing as this. (laughs) Only God could make a creature like this both spiritual and physical, the dust of the earth and the breath of God, responsible as stewards and morally accountable. But that means for God to make a creature as like us, for us to sin, to fail and to fall, to rebel, is tragic and destructive for everything around us. And we see the result of that. I don't think I have to convince you of the result of sin. This is the beginning of the story. Friends, but as we know, the story continues in which God sends to us Jesus, his son and our savior. That because Adam sinned and we, following his example, fall deeper and deeper into sin, destructive to our lives and those around us, God rescued us by giving us Jesus who came in our place, died our death to redeem us. God gives us new spiritual life, but it only comes through his son. He makes us a new creature and a new creation when we put our faith in him, trust in him as Savior. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this truth, Lord, that we as human beings are created by you as spiritual beings, that we are more than the dust of the earth, that we are more than stardust and molecules and atoms, that we are the breath of God, and you have made us responsible for this creation, you've made us accountable to you, and Lord, we know, as the story continues, not only does Adam fall deeply into sin, but those in his made in his image, after him, like us sitting in this room, have followed his example in rebellion. And we thank you then this morning, Lord, for grace that's found only in Jesus. So Lord, I pray, we pray this morning, show us this grace again. Reveal to our hearts and minds your love for us and compassion. Lord, you breathe life into Adam with a kiss once. We pray for anyone here, maybe, Lord, who is searching and seeking for spiritual life that you would breathe life into them again through the kiss of the gospel. Bless us, Lord, as we take communion and remember the sacrifice of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for sinners like us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.